You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Continuing this series, second of six weeks, um, in parts of the Gospel of, of Luke, uh, getting to the heart, um, just because I needed a needed a title as much as anything else. I don't think I'm going to sort of stay with that as much as I thought I would. Um, but I think it's starting to develop a, a theme or a word. Uh, this week, uh, a man fell amongst robbers, uh, what, what we often call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, it starts off, uh, a man fell amongst robbers, and so kind of hopefully look at it. I don't know if it's going to be a different lens or not. Thank you very much, Tommy. Um, a different lens for anybody, but uh, but we'll see. Um, hope to do a little bit of text work, obviously, and then look at a clip from Little Miss Sunshine. So kind of let y'all know that you've got that to either look forward to or to leave now, if you'd like. Um, uh, let us pray. Gracious Father, speak now. Um, open our ears. Open our eyes. Let us, uh, uh, by your grace, um, see you revealed to us. Um, help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned a minute ago, um, I thought, you know, might play with the phrase getting to the heart when I was first thinking about this series, I don't know when, you know, a long time ago. And I don't think, I think probably what I, I didn't stumble into it, but sort of did, just sort of Luther's distinction between the works of God's left hand and the works of God's right hand. And I, th- I think that's probably where, at least this week, I don't know about next week, that's probably where we're going to stay. Um, what does he mean by that? What do we mean by that? Um, uh, right-handed power, the works of God's right hand. Um, uh, you know, he wasn't trying Luther, and, and, and now by extension, we are not trying to draw a distinction. You know, preferring right over left. Um, he certainly saw, and I didn't make this point strongly last week, that both are you know the hands of God, um, and therefore good, right, holy, and true. To borrow Paul's phrase about the law in, uh, in Romans 7. It's not to say that God's right-handed work is somehow not the work of God. Um, and we just want to draw in a different way of understanding God's left-handed power or the works of God's left hand. So what are those? Let's go back to what um, uh, that distinction. I'm going to try to sort of stay there. Let us rub around in a little while, maybe get the aroma of Christ on it because it's, it's different. It's not what we normally think. Um, the works of God's right hand are exactly what we normally think. Um, uh, right-handed power is straight-line power. It's power that you see coming from 100 miles away. Um, it's the power that the meteorologists forecast about Florence and all that stuff. It's like, you know, leave now. It really is going to hit you in 10 days. It's nine days away. We, we suggest that you get your water and your rations ready. There's going to be a big flood. You need to get ready. It's coming. It's coming. I mean, it's right-handed. It's predictable. It's understandable. It's recognizable. It's sensible. It's manifest. It's apparent. It's visible. You look at it and you say, "I know what that is." There's no mistaking. That's that's uh, that's power. It's associated with what we normally associate things like power with position, prestige, money. Um, the things that make the world go round, as we like to say. Um, 
uh, people in power make decisions that affect all of us or something else like that. Um, right-handed power, whether it's you know God's right hand or just our right hands, the power that we like to exercise um, as we administer our families or as we are administered by our bosses or for those of us that are bosses or supervisors as we uh, oversee the work of others or any number of relationships that we might have. Right-handed power is the power that you would think. You can abuse it, you can use it well, um, but it's right-handed and it's what you think it would be. So I set all that up. <laughs> Obviously, left-handed power is the opposite. Um, what looks like weakness is in fact strength. What looks to the world like defeat is in fact victory. What looks to the world as nonsensical, stupid, ugly, uh, worthless is in fact precious and uh, the wisdom of God um, and uh, life itself. I hope everybody's got in the back of their mind something like Good Friday. You know, it's the great question. You know, I started running that when I was 15 years old. Why in the world do we call this Good Friday? Well, it's because it's left-handed work. God's left hand is at work in the cross where we would look at it and we would be Horrified, you know. Doug's good sermon, you know. It's an instrument of terror, in the same way that we might, um, you know, hold up uh, what a cage and a box of kerosene and saying, you know, you know, put you in this and I'm gonna douse you with kerosene and I'm gonna light it unless you do X. That's right-handed power. It's gonna be ugly and cruel and painful, and it's gonna be the end of you um, unless you get in line and do what I want you to do. You know, terror. Um, the cross is something other than that. Um, it's the work of God's left hand. We would say it's hidden and not revealed. Um, it's nonsensical because what the world would call ugly, God says, no, that is beauty. What the world would call defeat, God says, no, that's victory. What the world calls death, God says, no, that's life itself. Um, the works of God's left hand, which are hidden, except to those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And that's where that phrase is always just repeated as Jesus uses it, that those who are perceiving, but they never perceive, who hear, but they never hear, who see, but they never see. And he speaks so enigmatically in parables um, where you're just like, what? And that's, you can, that's left hand. That's what we can immediately begin to associate. So with all that, we looked at some of the, the verbs of God's activity. What does God do? He saves, he raises, he delivers, he redeems, he justifies, and he rejoices. We looked at some of those words. And this is the natural religion of each one of us. And so, in other words, who we are naturally, who we are left unto ourselves. And so this is where you know we stay yet sinners, even now we're justified. Uh, that it's in each one of us, even as Christians, even as members of the body of Christ, we think, who does God save? And there's a part of us that still holds on and we think surely he only saves those that are worth saving. <laughs> surely he only saves those that he looks down and says, well, he's got potential. Surely he only justifies people that have something to offer his kingdom because he's a king. I mean, what king would want to have uh, a nation, a people serve him who are, who are losers, who have no value, who in fact thwart his hopes and his purposes. Um, surely God must raise only those who show some promise or have demonstrated to him something that was worth 
saving or raising or rejoicing over. And the scripture's consistent word is no. The way that your heart thinks, getting to the heart, is, uh, is not mine. Um, the heart of God says the exact opposite. Who does he raise? He only raises dead people. He can't raise somebody that's alive. He only raises those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And who does he justify? He only justifies the wicked. He justifies those who are godless or his enemies, the people that are putting nails in his hands and his feet, um, as Paul would say in Romans 5. And who does he rejoice over? He doesn't rejoice over, gosh, you're doing great. Y'all are finally starting to get it. You're making good choices. You're ordering your families. You've got a good city. You've got a good state. You've got a good nation. Y'all are doing just what I hoped you would do. You know, well done, people. You know, he doesn't rejoice over that. It says, does not God go and forget the 99 and go out and find the one? For he rejoices over one sinner who has been saved. And we'll see that soon in the, uh, especially the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, um, uh, more than the 99 who were in line. Um, so we're just going to keep rubbing around in that, getting to the heart, our own hearts, which want to sit there um, and say, surely things that are beautiful, our church, um, uh, people who seem to have it all together, um, surely that's a sign of blessing, the beauty of holiness, uh, that, that when something is beautiful, it must be holy. When somebody looks like they have it together, it must be the sign of God's blessing. And I want to press that point too hard, but I do want to say, no, that, that's, that's natural. If we got together and made a committee and we said, let's think about a religion and let's make this up and let's just spend a week in here, we're going to sort of hammer this out. That's what we'd come up with, that beauty equals holiness and, uh, and victory equals blessing. And God wants to say, let's just at least slow down because the cross is really, really, really ugly. And, uh, and broken people, it seems to say, the scripture seems to say, are the ones that God, in fact, seems to prefer. He at least prefers to spend time with them. Um, so to, anyway, so left-handed work, the left-handed power of God, just to slow us down, to hit a speed bump when we look at something and say, gosh, they must be really having it all together because God must really like them. Or they must be doing it right somehow because I see X, Y, and Z. When that X, Y, and Z looks like victory or peace or order or whatever I don't have, <laughs> but they do, we think, and we think that they've got it right with God, that's justification. God wants to say, the Word wants to say, slow down, my son, slow down, my daughter. Let me speak to you. I have a word for you directly um, that you're mine. I choose you, not the other, not that other. I want to celebrate lostness, leastness, outcastness. Uh, I want to be the one who speaks to you. To you and all your dysfunction, setting up Little Miss Sunshine. Um, so that's kind of where, that's, that's the intro, in fact. That was a nice 10 minute intro. Any thoughts there? It's going to kind of keep rubbing us in that for a little bit, probably as we, we start this, these classes. Um, questions or comments? Um, we're going to be in Luke 10. Um, so if you have a, you want a Bible, they're over there. Maybe um, Nathan or Tommy, y'all could grab some and pass them down. If you just want to hold up a hand if you need one, or if you have a lot of people have it on their phone. Uh, uh, the thing about the 
prodigal son, which most of us know. Um, even I'm not the prodigal son. I'm sorry. The parable of the Good Samaritan, where uh, you know, just in, in we're going to look a little bit more than that. But as the Bibles are going around, uh, we usually think of the parable of the Good Samaritan being about the Good Samaritan. Um, go and do likewise. Be like the Good Samaritan is what the normal read of the parable is. Uh, that there was a man who was uh, fell amongst robbers and he was beaten and left for dead and and a priest is walking and he sees him and he crosses over on the other side of the street because he says I don't have time for that and likewise a Levite which is kind of like a a priest um, for the same reason and then a Samaritan an outcast a half breed uh, sees him and he gives him time and money and uh, and Jesus seems to celebrate him and I want to we're going to look at that maybe in a little bit of a different way, because if God's left-handed power celebrates leastness and lostness and I don't have it togetherness, then why in the world would he suddenly turn around in a parable like this and say, so you see, the Samaritan's got it all together. (laughs) The Samaritan knows what to do. Why don't you do it? Why don't you do like the Samaritan does and just lay aside your own self-interested heart and be more concerned about somebody else rather than yourself. And that's how we normally read the parable, right? Well, there's another way. Perhaps there's another way. Um, now, it's great. You know, let's all slow down and pay attention to people that don't have what we have and, and, and give to them, give our time, our money, and our talent. I'm not saying don't do that. But I do want to say that's not the first read. Um, so let's look at, uh, at Luke. I'm starting in Luke 10, because um, this will definitely set up uh, the, 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 the movie here in a little bit. Right up at the very beginning where Jesus sends out the 72. Um, let me turn in my Bible. Um, uh, not to read the whole thing, uh, but just that one part. The 72, this is where he takes the 12 and he says we need a few more people. The, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You know, the, the wheat is in the the field and it's ready to go, but we've only got 12 people. We need to get a lot more to go out there and we'll hire some day workers. That's the metaphor that he's using. Um, so they go out and they recruit others. Every every one of them gets, what, six others. And so they get 72 people and they send them out two by two and they go forward. And here's Jesus' instructions as he sends them out. Um, just looking at verses 3, 4, and 5. Go your way. Behold. And I do want to keep holding up that word. That's the word. That's my word the last year and a half, two years or something like that. And now I can't read the Bible, especially the Gospels, and not see that word. Every, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, suddenly I'm like, how did I miss this word? He's like, look. You know, it's often written, amen, is what the word literally is. He's just saying, slow down, because this is going to be truly true, actually actual, and really real. There's no ambiguity when he says, behold. And so you know he's about to say something. Um Go your way. Behold, good news, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Behold, okay, so no ambiguity, no sort of veiled meaning. He's just sort of letting it out. And what does he say? I'm sending you out where your only asset is you make a really good dinner. I'm sending you out so that all your resource is is that you're a lamb and the wolves want to eat you. And that's your good news. So don't take anything else. Don't take a money bag. Don't take a knapsack. Don't take a sandals. Don't take your wallet. Don't have a credit card. Leave your cell phone behind. 
Don't take anything that you normally would use and associate with security or power or um, leverage, right-handed power. I'm going to exercise left-handed power through you. So go out as a sheep amongst wolves. Don't carry anything with you. And whenever you enter a house, say, peace. I have nothing here except what you see. Peace be to this house. I'm going to carry that over because that's all in Luke 10. You can see the rest of the kind of glance at the the headings. Um, Woe to the unrepentant cities. It's just always worth sort of, because I I still hear this a lot, actually, a lot. Um, Look, I don't know what people want to say. I don't know what the Bible says, but I do what Jesus is. He's just the nice guy with the teaching. If we just all did what Jesus told us to do, the world would be a better place. And I know what they're saying, but I also know that they're wrong. That's don't don't let's not fall into that. That that, that that cheapens Jesus so much because look at what he just woe to you, um, woe to you. Um, if your mighty work's done, uh, it's better for you if you had been laying in, in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, uh, you should be brought down to hell. Um, you know this is not Jesus meek and mild. This is not Jesus just the nice moral teacher and all he wants to do is sort of give us Aesop's fables. Um, I'm not going to go into that, but don't, don't, don't fall into that trap. That's what people are going to want to tell you that Jesus is, and he's he just will not be limited into a box like that, where he's just Gandhi for us Christians, where he's just Socrates or Plato, where he's what right hand, sensible, understandable, predictable. If we would just do what he says, and society could be ordered, we'd be okay. Salvation without blood in the words. And he's not going to let that happen. He just will not let that happen. And then the 72 come back and they're just crazy, you know, um, that, hey, it worked. I said, be gone. And it's like, whoa. And, you know, power flew from their hands and they were just drunk. And he's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, and then this, we'll pick up in verse 21. We'll go pretty quick. Uh, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. This is where we get sort of um, an inside look at the perfect intimacy between the Father and the Son. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And here's the hidden and revealed. You know, hidden is left hand, revealed right hand. Um, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. So we hear that and say, like, Jesus is not readily apparent. Four out of five dentists say that joke all the time. Don't agree that, oh, I know who that is. That's the Son of God, the uh, the only begotten of the Son, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance. You know, that is not natural knowledge. The heart doesn't immediately intuit that. No one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. And then this is the word that should humble all of us. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I choose you. That word of direct address. I'm going to show you the Father. Um, I want to show you the heart of God. And he says, you, you, you're the one. Don't worry about the others. I'm not keeping up with the Joneses here. You're the one. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately. That was overheard because the lawyer is going to hear that and he's going to ask him the question. But he turns to the disciples, to the twelve, including Judas, by the way, and he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Um, We'll pick that up now, but maybe later. And then a lawyer. And behold, there's that word again. And behold, a lawyer, always a lawyer. A lawyer stood up and put him to a test saying, Teacher, a rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus sort of sensing what's going on. He speaks right-handedly and he says, uh, he says to him, what's written in the law? Um, the lawyer, that just means not, not the lawyers that we think of now, uh, but just one who deals with the law, the law of God. And so they're the teachers, the rabbis, the priests, the Levites. Um, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered from Deuteronomy, uh, from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he goes over to Leviticus, and with all your mind. And he goes over to Leviticus, and he says, and your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, aha, see, I combined two verses um, and I put them together as one. How about them apples? Uh, And then Jesus said to him, pat, 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 with his right hand, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Ha, just do this and you will live. Um, uh, But the lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, that's a big word. Remember, who does God justify? Not the righteous, but the wicked. Um, And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, granted, a little bit of oversight here, a little bit of a overstatement, but he's doing with the natural heart, with the heart, getting to the heart, not our God's heart, but also our own. What do we do? We make the law manageable. The one who deals with the law, he wants to narrow it down and say, well, then who is my neighbor? Because if I know that it's you know ginger, then I'll just sort of do this to ginger this minute, and then I'll be okay. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love ginger as yourself for this period of time, because you know my extenuating circumstances, and things aren't going really well for me right now, and otherwise I get back to it, but I can't write. So he goes through, but desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies. So let me set this up. We'll make the bridge to um, what I hope is something like a parable, this movie, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, to explicate a parable. So I gave you the end. We all know this parable anyway. The, uh, the punchline is, go and do likewise. And we think, okay, so he's telling us to go and be nice and be kind and give of ourselves our time or money and our talent like the Samaritan did to the man who was beaten up and left for dead. Now, is that a wrong reading? It's not a wrong reading per se, but it's not the best reading. It's not the first reading because the question is, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a story to answer that question. So the characters of the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, um, a Samaritan, I think we know, most would know, but let's say it again. What's a Samaritan? I mean, there's there's Judea and there's Samaria and then there's all the world. We hear that like an axe, this concentric circle where there's Judea and this is all the Jews live here. And there's Samaria and there's all the world, all the world where the non-Jews, the Gentiles live. And so like happens in a lot of things, you've got this sort of middle circle where there's intermarrying and there's half kind of half Gentile, half Jew and, and all that sort of, you know, mixedness, which is easy to sort of look down and say, well, you're not like I am. Um, you're not you don't have 20 years. You've only got 15. You're not pure like I am. You know, just a way to sort of get into the inner ring. I'm here and you're not. And that's the Samaritans. They're the half uh, they're the half-breeds, for lack of a better word. It's kind of a harsh phrase, but that's that's what the Samaritans were. And so they were despised. They were really looked down upon, um, which is part of the thrust of this parable, and it's going to be part of the thrust of, of, uh, of Little Miss Sunshine. Um, 
where the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan are all the ancillary characters. The Good Samaritan is not the point. He's an ancillary character demonstrating neighborliness, answering. They're the characters that are illustrating the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Which means that the person who was beaten up and left for dead is the central character. So I'm even going to put the card on the table and say he's the Christ figure. Jesus is saying, look, this is going to be like me being beaten and left for dead and, in fact, killed. Um, uh, you know, that's what the invitation is going to involve. That's some sort of uh, leastness or lostness or left for deadness. Um, remember the word of the 72, go out and be dinner. That's my invitation to you. So here's the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, it's just a, a Levite is one of the tribe of Levi, you know, one of the twelve, um, the, the, the tribe of Levi were the, the tribe from which the priest in the Old Testament um, uh, of, of Judea came. Uh, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, and that'd be a real punchline, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It's just this picture of lavishness. What the word prodigal actually means, wastefulness. Just wasting one thing on another, on another, on another. It's hyperbola. I mean, this is really going so far beyond the law. Um, Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Strength, love your neighbor yourself. And he says, just excessive. It's almost like he just sort of thinks of one more thing to say. Um, uh, bound up his wounds and oil and wine and his own animal and an inn and he took care of him and two denarii and an innkeeper and if you spend more just open the tab and I'll, I'll, I'm good for it. Um, and then he comes back to the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So what's he talking about here? Um, who is he saying go and do likewise about? Um, the one who showed mercy? Yeah. Um, but more than that, uh, how did he show mercy? Go and do what? Go and exercise the works of God's left hand. Go and do leastness and lostness and outcastedness. Go as a Samaritan, as a half-breed of one that's disdained and looked down on, and share in the sufferings of those who suffer. Go and die with those who are dying. Go and uh, uh, give to those uh, like you who need. And here's the move to Little Miss Sunshine. Um, Y'all know that story, the, the movie? I can't remember when it was, 2006 or something like that. And I, I think I've showed it before, but even as I looked at it again, it, that, I'll admit it, it presses the um, uh, the appropriateness, perhaps, of even what I've, and I've got a pretty wide view of that for Sunday school classes. Um, 
because it's the last scene, if you remember it. Most have probably seen it. Where, exactly. Um, uh, it, it's a picture of this dysfunctional family. Um, they have very little. I think they're living like in a trailer in Arizona. And Olive, uh, which has something to do with peace, by the way. Um, and Olive is this little girl. She's probably eight or nine years old. Uh, and she's queen. She kind of falls into... Uh, somehow winning a beauty pageant in her little small town. Um, and so one thing leads to another, and for some reason, because she won that, she gets to compete at the national beauty pageant for children, for eight-year-old girls. Um, and this is her heart set on it, and they don't have any money, but they really want to do this for Olive. So this dysfunctional family, you got Steve Carroll in there, who's a PhD, uh, Proust, Proust scholar, um, French philosopher, poet, or something like that. Nobody knows who Proust is, and that's why it's funny, because, uh, and he just tried to commit suicide, and he's completely messed up. Um, You've got the dad who is, a, is trying to make it as a motivational speaker and a life coach, and his life is in the toilet, and so you've got all that kind of parody. The mom is just barely hanging on, working two jobs. The, uh, the son took a vow of silence um, until he uh, found out because he wanted to be a test pilot, like an astronaut, and then he never knew that he was colorblind, because how do you know you're colorblind? Because until somebody tells you that you don't see colors, you don't know that you don't see colors. You just, that's the world you see, you see the world. And so he finds out that he can't, in fact, be a test pilot on this trip. Um, and so he, he yells and he gets angry and he's, he's just, you know. And then Alan Arkin, or Adam Arkin, I can never remember the two, uh, is this hippie, ex-hippie grandfather who uh, is sort of, you know, autonomy or die, live free or die, give it to the man, um, and who still loves to uh, sort of snort heroin or shoot heroin or whatever else. And on the way, he dies and all that. So anyway, it's this totally dysfunctional family. Um, uh, and it's the grandfather, who's now dead, teaches um, Olive this dance, um, very inappropriate dance, but so are Jesus' parables. Not a strong justification, but he really puts it out there where he hangs around with harlots and strippers and prostitutes. And, and the, the grandfather teaches this girl uh, to do at the typically prim and proper, uh, very much sort of a Levite um, uh, sort of world of eight-year-old beauty pageants, um, teaches her uh, like a stripper's dance to be her talent. And it's the left-handed power. I mean, it's a great parable of left-handed power because this girl gets up there. And remember how Jesus sent out the 72? Here's what I want you to do. You're a lamb. You sweet, sweet lamb. You've been so domesticated. You have no natural abilities of your own. You are absolutely defenseless. That's what a lamb is. They have no ability to defend themselves. If human beings did not exist, lambs would be no longer. That's true. Lambs do not exist except because uh, people make sure that wolves uh, and other predators don't eat them. They have nothing. They can't run fast enough. They, can't, they don't have hooves that can beat them off. They're completely defenseless. Olive, I want you to go out there as a lamb to wolves. You're going to go out there to your death. You're going to die. And the scene right before this is actually, I didn't notice it until I was watching some clips from it. There's this great scene right before. I almost showed that too, but I knew I didn't have time. This is a five-minute clip uh, where she goes down the hallway and her mom actually comes to senses. Behold, um, Olive, you don't have to do this. She puts on her hat and she walks out there. 
and hand in hand. This is a kind of a Judas moment to me. She goes out and she's walking down this long hallway, you know, with her captor. That's the this goofy woman who's the beauty pageant helper. She's going to her death, basically. I know I'm stretching this up, but it's the parable of, uh, of the man, Olive, of the little girl who fell into robbers. And now it's the left hand of God where she comes through and uh, as the right hand, the sensible thing, you know, get your daughter off the stage. That's the sensible thing. She's making a mockery of this and she's just being, you know, she's not like us. Get her off the stage. And the family has this moment where they could do the sensible, predictable thing and exercise the power of a father, the power of a mother. And it's like, Olive, sweetheart, come on, let's go home. We don't need these people. You know, you're, you're good. Don't worry about them. You know, we're going to go get a hamburger and a, and a milkshake and let's just drive home. But they don't do that. They actually exercise the left hand. Uh, and there's a power. There's a true redemptive moment here. So I set that up. I see people knowing the story and you can remember it. And it does. It's kind of a weird thing but it's also slightly offensive. So any thoughts there before we get going? So, um, Thank you. 
There's a right hand, left hand moment. That's the best part, right? <laughs> Finally, something interesting. So for just a moment there, um, you know, they were lost in their lostness as that family. Um, but it was something, I mean, it looks like joy. You know, more joy, more rejoicing for the uh, one sinner who's been brought near who thought I was not love, but now knows love, um, who once was uh, dead, but now is alive. And there's a life and a joy and redemption in this little parable in uh, Little Miss Sunshine uh, that I think Jesus wants us to associate with this sense of uh, a man once fell amongst robbers. And it wasn't uh, an Aesop's fable to say, go and just do likewise and be kind. It's enter into that kind of joy. Enter into that kind of joy that this totally, absolutely of a train wreck of a family saw for a moment, a glimpse of the eternal now that is heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I think, I think, I think all these parables that have that smell of a left-handed power of God's hidden work where he's absolutely present doing something that we may not know I think that's a little bit of what's going on. Um, Let's pray. We'll look at it next week.
Lord, um, correct me as ever I beg where I'm wrong, um, where your work uh, would be done in your own way with your left hand, the work of uh, redemption through uh, uh, your death, um, our death, so that we would have life um, and the joy, uh, the abundant joy uh, from the new life. Um, Let that work uh, seize us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all. See you next week. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.